Well, good morning. Turn to Ecclesiastes, if you can find it. Hopefully by now you can. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Starting at verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. 
Then the first verse of chapter 8. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. This is God's Word. Father, I just ask for your help this morning to deal with this chapter and the first verse of chapter 8. I know there are many things in here that we resist, some that just seem plain odd, and I just pray that you would help me this morning um, to be able to both explain it and proclaim your truth. I pray that where I am scattered, um, that somehow you would take scatterings and that it would bear fruit both in my heart and in the hearts of those who listen. Where maybe my scatterings or meanderings are wrong, of course I ask that you would change those in the hearts of those who listen and that they wouldn't receive that. But God, may we receive your word this morning. May we receive this as a way to live a better life in Jesus. Amen. So one commentator said, perhaps this is the most difficult chapter in the book. Especially when you consider some of the later parts of the chapter. And when you consider some of what seem like contradictions to what have already been said earlier in Ecclesiastes. But we know from the Apostle Paul that all Scripture is God-breathed and that it's good for us, that it's profitable. So what we're beginning here in Ecclesiastes is a Proverbs-like section. And you've already noted that just from as I've read it. It's very similar to the book of Proverbs, especially the first half. These kind of quick, pithy, punchy sayings. But you'll notice that there is a word that is often used in here, and that's the word better. Good and better is used about 15 times in the chapter. And this idea of good is, or excuse me, this idea of better is this idea of goodness, beauty, attractiveness, that there is a way to do life that is better than another way to do it. And we find that the better life that he is offering us is surprising, even shocking. That some of it cuts against what we ourselves think, sometimes as Christians, and sometimes definitely in the culture around us. And so I titled this sermon, 13 Countercultural Ways to Live a Better Life. Countercultural, kind of a mouthful. I think when most of us think of that, we probably think of things like hippies, communes, punk rock. Just this idea of going against the grain, maybe even anti-establishment, anti-authority. But culture itself is just basically a way of life. That we as Christians live a certain way of life. The world offers a certain way of life. And what he is offering to us is that, do you want to live a good life? Do you want to live a better life now? Do these kinds of things. Do you want to stand out? Do you want to look different? Live this kind of life. And so he is offering us a better way of life. 
a wise way versus a foolish way. That will be different than those around us. And it could be that this whole way that he's thinking is answering a question that happened at the end of verse, excuse me, of chapter 6. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So who knows what's good in this world of Havel, in this world of futility, of wispy smoke, in this world that's like an enigma, this world that just continues to go in cycles over and over and over again, this world in which death has intruded. How do we live a better life? And I think he gives us 13 ways. So the first one, I think, is in verses 1 to 6. And our culture puts off death. We put it off practically. Obviously, as humans, we want to avoid it. We would like to stay alive. We put it off medically. We sometimes ship off people to go live in separate housing as they are awaiting their death. Many times families are not around death like they used to be when you would be very used to death happening in your house. And so we tend to completely avoid it. And I think the counter that he would be offering to us is don't avoid death. Be aware of it. Think about it. Meditate on it. And even enter into the grief and the sadness of death and the results of sin in the world. So, Coulter says, put it off, avoid it. Let's just make youth the most attractive thing, the best thing. Let's not look at aging. Let's not look at dying. And he's saying to us, don't put it off. Look at it. And the ways in which he does that, the first verse, a good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. This idea of reputation. That a lasting and faithful name is greater than fame. That reputation is better than luxury. This idea of precious ointment, oftentimes in the Bible, is tied to like the king's houses. He has a bunch of storehouses of all kinds of stuff and inside of it is precious ointment. Luxury. So having a good name that lasts longer than your, than your life is way better than having a life that's just full of luxury, full of celebrity. So I think it begs the question, what will your legacy be? What will your family say? What will your friends say? And so he's telling us, a good name is better than precious ointment. Live with the end in mind. In the day of death than the day of birth. Birth, you're alive, wonderful. Nothing's happened yet. Death, life has occurred and that's going to say a lot. Verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So I think the idea here is that you'll learn more at a funeral than at a party. 
And at a party, you're obviously not thinking about death. You're just enjoying the feast. You're enjoying the drinks. You're enjoying the dancing. And again, from other parts of Ecclesiastes, we know that that isn't wrong. The Bible's full of feasting. But here, he is reminding us that there's something about a funeral and the effects of it upon your heart and your soul that's better than a party. That's better than the pub. And he tells us to lay it in your heart. Again, the heart, this, this controlling center of your life. Spend time with it. Think about it. Enter into the grief of the morning and to sit with it. And what happens when you avoid grief or you avoid death or sadness in your life? It often does not reap good effects. But I think he calls us to don't just avoid it, actually go there. And be there. I've known people that try to just avoid all funerals. They're not fun to go to. That's for sure. But he's telling us that we can learn something by being there. That's important to life. Because it's your end. It's where you're going. And so lay it to heart. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. This word sorrow sounds like Martin Luther um, is the one who first started to translate this at, as sorrow, and a lot of the verses and translations do. But from what I've read, that that's not really what it says. That part of the desire there is to force harmony with some other parts of Ecclesiastes. But that the word is more like frustration or vexation. The NIV says frustration is better than laughter. So the sense of this internal kind of vexed heart, um, frustrated heart. I think of Jesus. There's a, there, there's a verse, and I forget exactly where it is in the Gospels, but to where he's confronted with either disease or death or something like that, and there's a sense of anger toward it. That this is wrong. There's something wrong with the world. And he's reminding us that just this laughter, just the superficial way of life, oh, it's all just going to be good. No, that we need to have a realistic perspective and it's okay to be upset at it. Because he's told us all through Ecclesiastes that the world is full of futility. It's a wisp. It's smoke. And there's a vexation that can set in and a frustration and that that can actually be a good thing to experience. By sadness of face, the heart is made glad. And again, that just seems weird. <laughs> but the external may be a sadness. There may be all that you're doing, all that you are in the moment. There is, there is a frustration with the way that things are. But inside, that can actually at times reveal a heart that is good. There can be a joy even in the sorrow. The Apostle Paul talked about that, how he was both sorrowful and always rejoicing. You can experience the grief of the world and the frustration and the anger at what is happening, and that's okay. In fact, that can be good and a part of a joyful person, not the way that we think about happiness in our culture, but he's reminding us that that's better than Laughter. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. 
So again, I think it just asks us, where is your heart? Where are your thoughts? What do you think about? Is it just in the superficial things? Or is there a soberness about life that accompanies you? And again, this isn't just meaning just walk around with your head down all the time, just beat up all the time. That's not what it's offering. It's saying the way to a good life and a better life, though, is not to just ignore it and to step back from it and just avoid it and treat it all as superficial like it's a big joke. It's not. It's serious. And so, is your heart able to be in the house of mourning? Or are you only able to sit in mirth and feasting? We should be able to do both, especially as... Christians. And that is good. That is the good life. Verse 5, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Again, just this constant partying, laughter, music on the radio, concerts. Just if life is only full of that, and only full of entertainment, and there is no sense of, sometimes I need to be warned and rebuked because I am wrong. We need to have that heart that will accept that. And I tend to be defensive. And he's saying that it's better to hear the rebuke of a wise person than to just sit in songs all day. Rebuke is good for you. Verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. And there's that word that comes up a lot. But this is wisp of smoke, breath. Crackling of thorns and when you start a fire and it just makes all the, all the crackles and it pops. That's kind of what just this laughter is. Fools who just go about their life not thinking about death, not thinking about anything else. They're just like these little crackling fire things that don't actually provide any heat and any real sense of goodness of life. It's just crackle. It's reminding us, don't be like that. Listen to warning. Listen to rebuke. So again, those, those six verses with this focus on on death, don't avoid it. It's good for you to look at it. It's good for you to enter into the grief of the world or the grief of your life at times and not just to reject it and be unwilling to sit in it. Verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Don't give, don't take bribes. At first I go, well, I mean, it could be. There could be a lot of us in this room that are taking bribes or giving bribes. Probably not, but I think there is <laughs> a cultural here thing in the last few years especially that we've seen happen in both the church and in politics of these non-disclosure agreements. You've probably seen that in the news recently. This idea that people in power use agreements to silence people because of wickedness in their life or in their organizations. 
We've seen this in politics, we, uh, or if you watch politics at all, you saw Elizabeth Warren confront Michael Bloomberg on non-disclosures and the silencing of women. That corrupts things. We've seen it in the business world. We've seen it in entertainment. We've seen it with Harvey Weinstein, with the Me Too movement of silencing people, using money to make them sign legal things and offering them a bribe. We've seen it in the past with President Trump and his life. Bribery is sinful, and these kind of agreements are wrong. And our culture may use them, but we should not be a part of them. In the church, we've seen it. Christianity Today came out with a recent article of ways in which non-disclosures, I have a friend who was in a toxic church, signed an agreement so that um, he would not speak of what happened in the church, otherwise they would not give him his severance pay and his medical for his family. So he signed it. And it's used in the church. Point is, bribes are real. Bribes happen. It's wrong. It's oppressive. Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 20. It especially preys upon those of the poor or it's a way of powerful people, wealthy people, to give people that aren't as wealthy a way to silence them and to give them a bunch of money for it. Deuteronomy 16, 8 to 20. No, it's not correct. Yes, it is. Never mind. I'm looking at the wrong word. I'm looking at the wrong number. Here we go. And this is interesting because notice how it connects us to people in power. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe, a, a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you. And in Proverbs, there are several verses about unjust gain. The idea here is using bribes. So it's a form of oppression. It may be in the culture. It should not be in the church. Don't give. Don't take bribes. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Culture says jump into outrage. Culture just get upset about everything. Every day there's something new to be upset about. All the time. Just open Facebook and just read social networking. There's something new to be mad about. Some of the things you probably should be upset about, but it's just this constant um, fervor of rage on this and then on this and then on this and just without, without any, any end. Don't jump into that. Be slow to anger. Similar to a longness and shortness of fuse. How long is your fuse? The Bible calls us to be slow to anger. The Revised English Bible says, don't be quick to take offense, for it is those, for it is, excuse me, 
Do not be quick to take offense, for it is fools who nurse resentment. That's what happens when you write like little, little tiny bits. Don't be quick to take offense, for it is fools who nurse resentment. And I'm just, I was really struck by that image. In what ways in your heart might you be nursing resentment? And I kept thinking of that image of a nursing baby. What are you continuing to feed on? The imagery is rather stark when paired with resentment. There's another thing that, it, that, that we can think of. One scholar wrote this. It also may indicate a kind of deep-seated and perhaps concealed or unexpressed anger, especially in the light of the parallel in the bosom of, which is another way of saying it. In other words, it is referring to seemingly uncontrollable anger that has overcome a person. And so this deep-seated, concealed anger that has been nursed and feeding on and the ways in which that can reveal itself. And for some, it might reveal itself in just being really loud. And for others, it can be hidden and concealed and a little bit more deceitful, like me. More of a passive-aggressive form of anger. So if you nurse resentment, if, if that's where you're gathering your food from inside of your soul and all of the various events that have happened, it can often be revealed in a few different ways, with just lashing out or with more passive aggressiveness. It's still there and it will overflow. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't jump into the outrage culture. Don't jump into just feeding on internal anger. Because slowness to anger is very close to the heart of God. When you think about the character of God in Exodus, in Exodus 34, when God reveals his name, one of the key attributes is that God is a God who is slow of anger. He's slow. He's not quick. And that's good news for me. That's good news for us. That that's the kind of God that we have and that we are called to imitate. I skipped one, didn't I? Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. This is a reminder to be a patient finisher. Be a patient finisher. The culture says it's all about new, it's all about novel, it's all about exciting, change jobs, change spouses, change life, all those kinds of things. And he's saying, be patient. Finish what you start. Don't just continuously get swung from this thing to the other thing and never finish anything. But the end of it is better than the beginning, so keep going. Be a patient finisher. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Literally, the long in spirit is better than the lofty in spirit. And again, that contrasts well with the next verse about quickness in your spirit. The longness in your spirit, patience in your spirit, is better than just lofty. You're lofty, you're proud, be quick and just do the new thing. But you're not going to be long. You're not going to finish it. And so he's calling us to be people that are patient finishers. This could be big things like finish the race. Keep going in the Christian life. 
don't quit. This could be little things, like maybe it's a project or something like that that you just kind of get tossed around all the time on and you never complete. Go back to it, finish it. That's a way to an improved and better life. Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. And interestingly, in our culture, nostalgia is a big deal. There's all kinds of television shows and movies, which is all just about remakes. They keep remaking the same thing over and over and over again. They can't even get a new story that's similar to an old story. They just remake the same story over and over and over again. Or on Netflix, there's been shows that have come out. It's all about 1980s and nostalgia. And I think they're doing now shows on 1990s nostalgia. Just this big thing about how we, we as human beings, we like to go back. We like to look back and get all nostalgic about the moment. So we can do that in ways that aren't good because then it can ruin our present and our future because we just keep thinking about the good old days. The good old days. So you have remake of old movies. You have the good old days kind of mindset. Oh, it was better back then. Life was better back then. America was better back then. Make it great again. Whatever. There's this sense of nostalgia of if we could just go back, we'd be good. And he's saying no. Don't be stuck in the past. Watch out for it. It can keep you from living in the present and working for a better future. Don't be stuck in the old revival. Pray for the next one, which is probably going to look different. For it's not from wisdom that you ask that. So when you start feeling that way, you go, hmm, not wise. I need to look at this a different way. Eleven and twelve. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So again, in our world, our way of life can be money is the highest form of security. If we don't have money, we don't feel secure. If we're building our retirement and we don't have enough money, we don't feel secure. If we have a lot more money than we thought we'd have, but it's still not as much as we would like to have, we still don't feel secure. But money is not the highest security. Wisdom is also security and safety. Now notice though, this, this verse is, is not against that. It's saying wisdom is good with an inheritance. An inheritance is good. Now the prosperity gospel is wrong. But prosperity is in the Bible, and prosperity can be a very good thing. It's not bad to have money and to have wealth. Think about a lot of the characters in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Think about those were wealthy people. Wealth can be good. But don't just sell yourself for wealth, wealth Excuse me, and don't just attach the gospel to wealth. But invest in the security of wisdom. protection. It's this word like shadow and shade. It's like a shadow and a shade for you. Both wisdom and wealth can be. There still can be ultimately temporary once you die. But that both can be a good thing. But that wisdom, we should be 
pursuing. It's an even greater legacy than wealth. And it's like money and its benefits. Verse 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And so most of the air we breathe is that we are the center of the universe, that we control our destiny, we can fix our futures, we can do it, we're in charge, and this reminds you, no. God is sovereign. He's in control. You are not. And so consider that. There's some things in the world that you just can't fix and you're never going to be able to fix. There's something in your life that you can't fix and you will never be able to fix. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? But when things are going well, be joyful. Again, a response to the sovereignty of God. Things are going well in your life. Great. Enjoy it. Enter that enjoyment. Don't just feel bad about it. The day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, when it's hard, when there's loss, when there's death, when there's this, when there's that, be sad about it. Again, this back of enter into the grief. Consider it. Wow, don't just try to avoid it. Don't just get superficial with it. So, relinquish control. Enjoy the moment of prosperity wholeheartedly. But don't waste those bad times of adversity. Meditate on them. Consider them. Think of them. Be reminded of who your king is. Because God reigns and God rules. And some of the reasons for the unruliness of things, for these things that are made crooked, are because it's the judgment of God. Eden, we talked about how much Genesis influences Ecclesiastes and the picture of Eden and goodness and life. But then God's judgment comes and things change and things are hard. And even in those hard things that God is sovereign over them, we think about the beast in Revelation 13, this horrible picture that God allows and God permits the judgments that occur on earth. But that one day, he is righteous king, will overthrow that and all will be made right. And so we can rest and trust in our king, that he is sovereign. Verses 15 to 18. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. I'm really fascinated by this verse and I find it very personally helpful in application. The culture, and I'm thinking especially here of Christian culture, can say, be religious, always do the right thing, be moral, do that, live up to the standard. There's that kind of cultural, church cultural thing that can happen, a pharisaical culture. Or there can also be a worldly one of just be whatever you feel like doing, 
know, be whoever you want to be. Follow your heart. Follow your own desires. It's just going to lead to a world of unrighteousness and death. But that both can be dangerous. And I think specifically with this righteousness thing, you go, I mean, wouldn't you just love to say this to your parents? Oh, but the Bible says not to be overly righteous. You know, I don't don't need to worry about things that much. Well, I think that there is a sense in which we can become overly scrupulous. I think that that word is helpful. I know sometimes in trying to do the right thing, that that itself can become very paralyzing. I think this is a reminder. God is gracious. He is good. No, that does not mean go do whatever you want to do. But sometimes a standard that is higher than even what God has set is not helpful or a standard without grace is not helpful and does not free you to life. And so any kind of religious moralism, any kind of hyper-spirituality can be deadening to you. One translation had this great question I thought was applicable. Why drive yourself too hard? The sense of just the self always drive. I've got to do the right thing. I've got to do the right thing. I've got to do the right thing. That's not helpful. That can be bondage itself. But God is the God of freedom. He is a God of grace. I found helpfulness in um, one writer on this particular issue. I think his name is Paul Tournier. And the reason why I say I think I can read the name, but I think it's French. Paul Tournier. I thought some of this was just kind of helpful in application to these verses. In the sense of where in which something can become such a high standard or an overscrupulousness that can set in. And he speaks to that, I think, well. He talks about an experience that he had on a ship with another Christian doctor. I'm quite upset. I've just been told that one of my colleagues here, or excuse me, that one of our colleagues here has been divorced and remarried. Is, is it true? Yes, I said. This is Paul speaking. Yes. After a further silence, he went on. How is it possible? How can you agree to his taking his place among us Christian doctors? I said nothing for the moment. Then my friend added, do you not believe that divorce is disobedience to God, a sin? Certainly, I said. But if we could only have only sin, sinless men among us, there would be no one here. At any rate, I should not be here. We are all alike. We are all forgiven sinners. A long silence followed. My friend went away. Later he returned. You're right. He said briefly, now I know what grace means. There you are. He is a zealous Christian whom I like and esteem very highly, very sincere, very reasonable, keen in evangelizing and no way pharisaical. The church proclaims the grace of God and moralism, which is the negation of it, always creeps into its bosom most particularly among those people who have the most praiseworthy care to uphold their faith by the rectitude of their moral conduct. Periodically in history, spiritual revivals burst upon the world. Religious movements arise, orders are founded. He just goes on to speak of a bunch of them. The spirit breathes, charity spreads, the greatness of God and his love are rediscovered and human pettiness is pushed aside. At the same time, the unlimited nature of God's requirements is rediscovered and the boundlessness of his grace. It's proclaimed. Men feel called, welcomed, not judged. And then gradually, inevitably, in that more virtuous, more austere environment, a new conformity emerges. Grace becomes conditional. Judgment appears. Anyone who does not subscribe to certain standards is suspected of infidelity and hypocrisy. And that is what awakens hypocrisy for everyone in an attempt to live up to his faith seeks to appear better than he is and begins to hide his faults instead of confessing them. 
He wants his children to set a good example as is fitting in a pious family. Moralism has returned and with it, the breath of the Holy Spirit is stifled. A helpful picture. The wonders of grace, but they can turn into just a moralistic attitude. And it can lead to a bondage to where you feel like you cannot even confess. You cannot be wrong. But what does the gospel say? What does the grace of God say? You can and you should. This place, the people of God, should be a place where that can happen. Not an overly scrupulousness, not an over-moralism, but a you confessed, you're forgiven. So that's where I spent most of the time on that piece. Clearly, there's another piece of just libertinism of, or just this cultural idea just to kind of find yourself and do whatever yourself wants and it can just lead to a life of unrighteousness um, and can lead to ultimate death of just pursuing your desires like crazy. Clearly, that is wrong. I felt like I know for me, I needed to hear that. I hope for us, we need to hear that um, to, to watch out for that in your heart. And if you suffer from that kind of overscrupulousness, over-scrupulousness, be encouraged. God's grace is big. Verse 19, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Rulers. So politics. In our culture, Politicians and politics is going to answer our problems. And that's, that's, and that noise is true. But we kind of believe that. And it's not true. To be a wise person is stronger than politics. Politicians will not save us. And when politicians are not wise, it is a problem. And we need more wise people. To be a wise person and stand out is way better than a bunch of politicians. Doesn't mean politicians can't be wise. But it's just saying, hey, you can have ten rulers in a city, people in great power doing all kinds of stuff. But if you've got one wise person there, isn't a ruler, that's even better. But politics nowadays, um, especially with um, in certain parts, uh, the rise of secularism and the rise of the new atheism where religion is just bad and the fadiness of certain parts of religion in the culture. One author wrote this. What happens when this religious rampart of the entire system is removed? I think what happens is illiberal politics. The need for meaning hasn't gone away, but without Christianity, this yearning looks to politics for satisfaction. And religious impulses, once anchored in and tamed by Christianity, finds expression in various political cults. These political manifestations of religion are new and crude, as all new cults have to be. They haven't been experienced and refined and modeled by millennia of practice and thought. They're evolving in real time. And like almost all new cultish impulses, they demand a total and immediate commitment to save the world. Now look at our politics. We have the cult of Trump on the right. 
among his worshipers can do no wrong. And we have the cult of social justice on the left, a religion whose followers show the same zeal as any born-again evangelical. They're filling the void that Christianity once owned without any of the wisdom and culture and restraint that Christianity once produced. And he goes on. But this idea of where politics can begin to take the place in a culture where the message of faith should take the place in culture. So wisdom, God's wisdom, God's word, regardless of where that fits on our personal politics, it should always be shaped by God's word, should be our greatest emotional attachment and greatest focus. So we need to let it both encourage us in some of our political leanings and let it rebuke us potentially in some of our political leanings. That God would make us wise that we might stand out in a culture that can think politics is everything and that that's going to solve the problem. King Jesus is everything. and That's the one who's going to solve the problem. It's his message and it's his kingdom who is our allegiance and should be our highest allegiance. So may God make us wise. Verse 20, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So culture says man is good. Man's born good. Or at least those on my side are. There's the good guys and there's the bad guys. There's us and there's them. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible flattens it. You're all sinners. Romans 3.23, you have all fallen short of the glory of God. So the question is not... Are you a sinner? But what kind of sinner will you be? Pascal, the old philosopher, said it very simply. If I can find it. Did it disappear? It might have disappeared. He basically says something like that there are two kinds of people. There are those who you know, know that they are righteous and think they are. That those who know that they are unrighteous And there's a difference between the two. Sometimes our righteousness, when you look at what Jesus said to the Pharisees, the ones that are blind are the ones who think they're righteous. But they're actually blind. The unrighteous ones are the ones that know they're unrighteous. And they can be free. So there's two different kinds. Which kind are you going to be? Which kind of sinner are you going to be? Both are sinful. It's sinful to be unrighteous. It's sinful to be self-righteous. But if you know you're self-righteous, that's unrighteousness. And you've owned it and you've admitted it and you can be made righteous. And if you're just unrighteous and you can care less about self-righteousness and appearance and you're just, I'm going to do whatever I want. And then then you come to your senses and you repent. There's grace for that. God saves you. And so... There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Next one. Do not take your heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So again, our ethos in this world is it's somebody else's problem. So what's the countercultural call to that? You are also a problem. So be thick-skinned. 
When you hear something said about you, don't take it into heart. You know that you've done and said a lot of similar things. So take responsibility for your stuff. Verses 23 to 29. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been as far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I have found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So this is a weird one. There's, um, there's some difficult interpretations with this particular passage. I think one way we could apply it is that sometimes in our culture, at least currently, the idea can be that men are the problem. And of course, that's not always true. Culturally, that can be the case. And there's a lot of reasons why we're seeing so much news about how men have been a problem. But the Bible can confront both men and both women at different times. So in this particular text, he's using women in one form and an unrighteous woman in a particular form as a way to avoid and to not be. So I think the countercultural response would be men escape foolish women. Women don't be foolish. The first option in reading this text, and, and you can read about them when you read commentaries, is there can be this idea that, oh, uh, he thinks women are inferior. He can find, he can find one righteous guy to the thousand, but pff, women he can't find. And that's a, that's a false and wrong interpretation. We know that from the rest of the Bible. Another option is that there is a certain kind of woman reading of the text, and that this is the woman of folly that he's talking about, the, the woman who is, who is nets and fetters. And that imagery goes back to Proverbs 7, Proverbs 5. We have these massive pictures of woman, excuse me, wisdom pictured as, as a seductive woman. And we have another picture of women as wisdom. And so, again, this is wisdom literature. You have these two different ways. You have folly and wisdom. I think this is calling women to be the woman of wisdom and not to be the woman of folly. And so, the kind of woman, the righteous woman that he can't find is just that. I, I can't find one. There's too many ones that aren't. Obviously, on the flip side, you could say the same thing with men. But this particular text is focusing on that. There's another reading, a more biographical reading from Solomon's perspective. 
that he's the one writing. He's, he's this preacher that kind of goes self-conscious occasionally as he writes. And he says, oh, I found this. I found that. And that he's saying, I can't find one. I can find a man, but I can't find a woman. There's all these women that, just, that, that are just nets and snares. But that's a problem because he was clearly looking for the worst kind. He is the one who had a giant harem, who had idolatrous wives. And so again, the problem flips back on himself. He can look for all of them. He's clearly looking in the wrong places. He's, got, he's been making all kinds of deals um, with, with other nations and bringing in other women. He's trying to find satisfaction in one thing alone, and he's not finding the right one. He's also not looking in the right places. And then another option, just taking this whole picture here, is a more metaphorical reading. Because from verse 23, 24, and 25, again, this whole picture of the association of wisdom and folly with a woman as a metaphorical picture, that it's elusive. It can't be found. We can't find wisdom in this culture. We can, we can keep looking for it. We search for it. We think we have it, and then it's gone. We look everywhere. We, we, we look for a person that's wise. We can't find them. Where are they? Nobody is. I keep hunting, I keep searching, I keep looking, I keep trying to invent things. There's this whole picture in here of, of schemes and, and inventions. I'm trying to explain it all. I'm trying to figure out the whole world, and, and, I, and I can't do it. And of course I can't do it because we know that man's hearts are evil. Again, the hearkening back to Genesis. In Genesis 6, 5, it talks about schemes and how our human heart is always trying to invent all kinds of different ideas and different ways of dealing with the world that are not from God. And so he searches it out. He's trying to know whether it's folly, whether it's good, and he just cannot find it. He's not going to find that wisdom anywhere. And so that brings us to the good news that we can't find wisdom we can't find lady wisdom in this world because we cannot do it on our own. But that as you read in Colossians, that there is one, there is one man who is wisdom, who embodies all of wisdom, and that's none of the men in this room, and that's not me. And that is Jesus Christ. And that this wisdom is the wisdom from God who comes down to man. We search for it. We can't find it anywhere on ourselves, but yet we just keep searching and that's all we're going to do. And God has said, the good news is this. The gospel is this. That he has come down as a man in the person of Jesus Christ as wisdom from God and to be our wisdom, to be our righteousness, to be all the different parts in this, in this passage that telling us to do certain things and we go, we look at, oh, yeah, it wasn't that, no. I missed that one. Oh, I'm missing that one. And we go, hey, Jesus is that for us. He is the wisdom from God. And we see this beauty of wisdom in this next verse. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. 
that wisdom is beautiful. The most attractive thing in the world is wisdom. The way to soften a heart is to be wise. In our culture, which says sexiness, hotness is the most attractive thing, but that wisdom is the most attractive thing. The wisdom embodied in Jesus Christ is the thing that will soften our hearts, is the person that will change us. That that is the way to live a better life because we can try to live better all we want, but He is the best. He is wisdom from God. So don't be deceived, as Colossians told us earlier when Bob read it. Don't be deceived by all the different cultural messages that just bombard us, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the culture. Don't be deceived to think we're going to find all of the answers there. You're going to find it in Jesus. And that's why we do another countercultural thing here that people outside of the church are not doing. They take communion. They drink and they eat to remind us that by doing this, we are saying our life is united to His. And so I can come and say, Jesus, I need your help. I got some issues. I need a way in which to live a better life, but I know I can't do it on my own, but you came to be wisdom for me, so I receive you. I drink you. I eat you. These tangible imagery. And to not be tricked and deceived by false messages that would push us from any other thing but that Jesus is the answer. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion here in just a second. So worship team, if you come.